put on your tightest jeans, your 10-gallon hat, and your I'm a Gillies rat swag, and let's talk about 1980s Urban Cowboy. This is Amy Blair. And this is Paul Galliardi. Welcome to the Annotated 80s, where we try to use our scholarly and critical skills to figure out what was going on in all those 80s TV shows and movies that we watched uncritically as kids, finally putting those PhDs to good use. (laughs) Good use is a relative term, I think. Well, we're finally actually monetizing our PhDs. Wait, no, not that either. This is we true. haven't we haven't set up our Patreon yet. Um, eventually, eventually, <laughs> uh, we will be able to monetize our PhDs properly. Um, I I'm monetizing this by standing outside at various points, just asking people for money. And <laughs> we'll we'll I'm in expo- court next we'll week explicate for literature for food. So, Paul, yeah. uh, we are going to yes. be talking today about <laughs> urban cowboy. Um, but it may be that many of our audience have not yet seen it or have not seen it for a while. So could you uh, give us a brief oh. summary of this film? I'd be happy to. Um, so John Travolta Woo-hoo. plays Bud, yes. uh, a cowboy, a real cowboy who moves to Houston in order to work at an oil refinery so he can save enough money to buy a piece of land in his small Texas hometown. He stays with his aunt and uncle who decide to take him to their favorite honky tonk, Gillies, the legendary bar run by <clears throat> run and co-owned by real life country singer Mickey Gilly and his partner Sherwood Cryer. Uh, so actually filmed at Gillies uh, in Pasadena, Texas. Uh, Bud soon becomes a regular with Gillies and by regular I mean he spends every night <laughs> at the bar. <laughs> And he, uh, basically doing me in grad school. Uh, and so he, he meets uh, Sissy, played by Deborah Winger. And after a brief, court, brief courtship, uh, Sissy and Bud get married at Gillies, naturally, uh, and then set up a home in a trailer. Um, meanwhile, back at Gillies, Bud becomes obsessed <laughs> with riding a mechanical bull and takes Sissy to a prison rodeo um, where they see a bull rider, uh, a convict bull rider named Wes Hightower. Um, ah, and nice he'll, name. he'll feature, it's an amazing name. It is a fantastic um, name. It's totally fantastic. And he'll be featured later in the, in the movie. He's, he's a key player. Um, so meanwhile, back at Gillies, uh, Wes Hightower has been released from prison and is working at the bar, uh, running the mechanical bull. He becomes attracted to Sissy and Bud gets jealous. And one night mm. after going to Gillies, Bud picks a fight with Wes at an all night diner and gets his ass pretty much handed to him. Really not a good meanwhile, idea. Back at the, you never do, right? Meanwhile, back at the trailer, <laughs> uh, things between between Bud and Sissy are starting to fall apart. Um, as they do. As they do. Uh, there's a lot of uh, food uh, not being taken, you know, a lot of dishes, and no one's really taking care of the trailer. So they both start to have affairs. And there are a few things that happen in between, but in essence, Bud falls, uh, starts to hang out with a wealthy woman who has this penthouse apartment in downtown Houston. Sissy starts to hang out with Wes Hightower. The climax of the film is an electronic bull ride competition, uh, which Bud trains for, complete with complete (laughs) mandatory 80s training montage music. Excellent, yes. Um, Defeats Wes. Wes decides to rob Gillies uh, and take Sissy to Mexico. Bud catches Wes sort of in the act, uh, beats him up, uh, and then he and uh, Sissy are reconciled. Um, and we get way too many cameos from Charlie Daniels <laughs> and, and scene and scene. Well, the biggest question we had about this, I mean, there's a, there's an awful lot of stuff going on here, right? We have, um, training montages, mm-hmm. we have, uh, competing affairs. We have, you know, a lot of garbage in the trailer. 
Um, and one of the things that we noticed <laughs> mid watch was that there's some sort of, there's a very confusing um, account of how long it actually takes for all these events to occur because we've got, you know, they meet and fall in love and get engaged and get married. And that might seem like something that takes, you know, um, at least a month, a couple months, mm -hmm. right? So there is a moment where Sissy and Wes are talking to each other in mm -hmm. the bar and Wes asks Sissy, well, how long have you two been together? And Sissy says, a, just about a week. And, <laughs> and we both, I don't know if <laughs> we were like, wait, what? <laughs> Did she just say a week? And we rewound it and we played it again. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that was in fact, and there's what a lot that said. happens in that week. So if we take her at their word, this is a whirlwind romance. Yes. And ah, oh, man, there's, I had a there's moment a where I thought, it. I thought, is this a Romeo and Juliet as, whirlwind as a, call out? Because of course, a, Romeo and Juliet happens over the course of four days, right? Um, and that's part of the Romeo and Juliet problem, right? Is mm -hmm. that first of all, these are very young teens with no prefrontal cortex and they make all of these decisions that lead them to their death really early. And that's, you know, everything happens too fast. And that's kind of the part, point of Romeo and Juliet. It's not actually a fantastic love story. It's a cautionary tale. Ruining Romeo and Juliet for all of our listeners. But, right. um, but then we thought, ah, that might be, that might be a little too much. So you went back, Paul, right? And kind of tried to reread and figure out the timing. And I still couldn't figure out the timing. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I looked and s s tried to see if there was any, if there was any like fan theory about <laughs> the timing. And um, if it, if it, it, sometimes I wonder if it's played a little bit for, for camp mm -hmm. and, or a kind of a, a comment on the uh the isolation of these characters and mm -hmm. this is something you just have to one has to just do right you just have to like you fall for somebody you must get married or you're just going to have promiscuous sex with other people so it's like one of two paths i suppose yeah. well and the proposal um, scene happens very yeah i mean the proposal scene happens uh they've gone out dancing we know that they've had like a the night that they meet they dance all night um, and then mm. there's kind of no sense of, you know, cut time or anything. And they end up at this, the all night diner. They run into two women with whom Bud had very recently, previously, apparently at the previous time he'd gone to Gillies, had ended up in a menage a trois with these two women, one of whom is Jerry Hall, by the way, who we did not recognize mm -hmm. initially. No, I was shocked. <laughs> I was shocked. I <laughs> <laughs> and they show up and Sissy gets jealous and Bud is like, you, you don't have to be jealous of this. And then she runs out. And this is the famous scene where she's running away from him. It's in all the promo posters. It's an amazing image. She's going out and she's going to hitch her ride home. And then Bud comes out, grabs her with bluegrass music playing, like wrestles her to the ground in the water outside the truck stop in the parking lot. And then looks at her and says, will you marry me? So the whole context of this proposal is this, you know, ridiculous moment that's kind of quasi domestic violence played for comedy because it's over a bluegrass banjo soundtrack. Sure. But then the next scene is their marriage at yes. back at Gillies. And so there's no, there, there's just no markers in this film of how much time passes between moment to moment. Mm -hmm. And it, at some point I was theorizing that this is some sort of Soviet style montage film where I'm supposed to like really <laughs> put in the gaps between each scene. Um, but that was a working theory I dropped pretty quickly. Uh, I, but, but it's funny because, <laughs> because I, had, I had seen this movie twice before and I had never made that, made that connection about mm -hmm. this, this odd timeline. Like actually everything else that we have covered so far, uh, except for Cheers, Urban Cowboy is actually based on a piece of writing 
in this case, it was not a book. It was actually an article, long form journalistic article published in Esquire magazine in 1978 uh, by Aaron Latham. Um, and this was a piece called The Ballad of the Urban Cowboy. So that title, The Urban Cowboys, in it, America's Search for True Grit. And the picture on the front page of this article is, is, is amazing and it's actually become iconic. You may have actually seen it without realizing what you were looking at. It's a picture of the real life Bud, who was a guy named Dew, who Aaron Latham found going down to Gillies. He went to Gillies and sort of hung out for a night or two and he really wanted to find, he basically was going down looking for an urban cowboy. Right, he had this idea of this figure that he was interested in looking for, um, and he ended up finding him. He actually ended up, I think, finding uh, Betty, the real life sissy, first. Um, Betty and Do had same as our, you know, Bud and Sissy. They had met at Gillies. Um, Betty actually was very interested in learning how to ride the mechanical bull, uh, just like our movie bud do did not cotton to that i guess <laughs> <laughs> and um they actually ended up breaking up uh because of that they did get married um but they ended up breaking up because of uh, betty's attachment to the mechanical bull um this article is really great it's it's a great example of uh the new journalism probably heard of tom wolf right you've certainly heard of truman capote um gay talise these are the three major authors that people connect with the new journalism. It was kind of the birth of a long form journalism where the pieces were nonfiction, but read like fiction. And the authors of new journalistic pieces took a lot of liberties in order to make their pieces sound like fiction. Um, it's very male dominated right. in terms of the authors. Uh, journalists would go and embed themselves in the, you know, in whatever scene they were interested in writing about, right? So um, Tom Wolf goes and embeds himself in drug culture. Um, Truman Capote goes and embeds himself, you know, his, his most famous one, of course, is in Cold Blood. But interestingly enough, Travolta's previous film vehicle, which is the thing that made him famous, which is the thing that kind of qualified him to do Urban Cowboy, mm -hmm. uh, Saturday Night Fever uh, had also been a new journalism long form article that got optioned to make a film. And there are actually, there's so many parallels actually between Urban Cowboy and Saturday Night Fever. Um, Travolta really becomes the hinge between the two of these things. We'll, we'll keep bringing up occasionally this Esquire article because so many of the things that, at least for me, as I was watching the film, I was like, oh, this film is making, it, it, it doesn't realize it's making this interesting commentary, but it actually is. And then when I picked right. up the Esquire article and read it, I was like, oh, wait, <laughs> this interesting commentary <laughs> is very explicit in the Esquire article. And I thought, well, hey, there's this gap then uh, between what is possible to get out of the film uh, and what was actually there all along. I kept thinking that the film was, you know, unselfconscious about it, but it really wasn't, right? It really knew what it was doing the whole time. So that was my own right, right. misunderstanding until I read this article where it makes it everything very explicit. Like he literally says, you know, these guys are not real cowboys. They're faking it. This whole thing is a simulacrum. Well, he doesn't use the term simulacrum, but, you know, is basically saying that but it's totally possible to watch the movie and not get that message at all. So, Amy, I think it's time we talk about the Travolta in the room. <laughs> John Travolta. It, yes. Uh, Paul, are you ready to talk about Travolta? I'm like so ready. It's like, it's weird. <laughs> it's weird. I've been like, you know, training really hard. <laughs> yes. Weird. I knew that this was coming. <laughs> Everyone could. This was one of the reasons that we had to do, in fact, a Travolta film. The requisite bad impression. As a young Italian-American from Philadelphia, Paul has been training his whole life. Wait until we get to a Stallone movie. And <laughs> it's, it's just going to get worse. Mm -hmm. it, the, the proverbial 
cannoli is out of the bag, as it were. And <laughs> um, but let, let's talk about John Travolta yes, in all let's. in all seriousness. Okay, so this is an interesting choice, uh, an interesting acting choice because John Travolta uh, is primarily known for three films or three art, three texts at this point. Uh, Welcome back, Cotter, the TV series. Mm-hmm. Greece, which is 1978, Amy, and Saturday Night Fever, which that film, <laughs> that film, uh, is kind of kind of aligns Travolta with the whole disco aesthetic because Saturday Night Fever is definitely a disco movie. Uh, it is a disco movie, um, and it. Like his cho- the choice for him to play Urban Cowboy at this time is also interesting because there's a significant disco backlash yes. happening in the United States. Yes. Uh, it the disco backlash really starts in like 1977 with mm-hmm. um, s- starting with a, a, a Chicago disc jockey who gets fired uh, for um uh, like not wanting to play disco and becomes sort of like tongue-in-cheekly is like disco sucks disco sucks and then you have the, the infamous comiskey park disco demolition night which turns into mm-hmm. basically a riot yep um but that takes on a life of its own right mm-hmm. where a lot of people start to play up that idea of disco sucks not part some of the reaction is a dislike of the music mm-hmm but a lot of the reaction seems to be a contempt for the urbanness of disco. Yes. Uh, the black, Latinx, queer cult communities that really respond to disco. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, init- and really were initially the audience for and consumers of disco, right? Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it kind of makes sense that or i should say it doesn't make sense in some ways for john travolta this this actor to be so associated with disco Mm -hmm. to be playing a character that is not at all disco-y well (laughs) it's it's the anti-disco right country western is the thing that's being elevated to Mm -hmm. replace disco in a lot of ways right it's more it's whiter it's rural it's it's more american quote unquote Mm -hmm. Right. It's more. It has more traditionally defined gender roles, right? In, yes. In, in, in both the persona of the 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 singers, but also a lot of the narratives of the songs have a, a very conservative yes. view of gender relations. Well, which is why, right? Initially, when they choose Travolta, it's very uh, very controversial. Um, because the Gillies community is uh, being brought so much into the filming of Urban Cowboy, they're using, you know, Gilly rats for, that's what they call themselves, the, the, mm-hmm. the regulars at Gilly. They're using them as uh, extras in the film. And they're obviously, they're interviewing the original Bud and Sissy, right? Dew and mm-hmm. Betty. Um, and everybody's a real skeptical, you know, they know who this John Travolta guy is and he's this, you know, he's the disco guy, right? Right. Um, so actually they take, there's a, there's a great documentary uh, film about the making of Urban Cowboy and the aftermath of it and the reception of it that I highly recommend um, you look this up. Um, but they talk about how, at, at Aaron Latham talks about how he took uh, John Travolta down to Pasadena, Texas, which is where Gillies is um, located. And they went and sat down and met Dew and talked to him for a long time. Uh, and Du says, you know, after I talked to Travolta for a while, I, I kind of felt like he understood me. Yeah. And one of the ways he understands him is on this level of being sort of a working class guy. And, you know, he feels like he gets him on this sort of class connection level. Mm-hmm. And so finally, I, I figured it would be okay, right? Because yeah. Travolta listened to me and listened to what it was like to work, you know, installing uh, insulation on this uh on this oil refinery mm-hmm. right uh, and he kind of got it um which is which is also an interesting parallel too to saturday night fever because mm-hmm. travolta's character in that film is very much working class working yes. at, a, at a paint store and yes his character's only escape is going to the discos at night and just as travolta's or bud's escape in essence from working at the oil refinery is going mm-hmm. to gillies right 
Absolutely. And it's, it's kind of interesting because Travolta in some ways is doing the same work for country Western music that he did for disco and Saturday Night Fever, right? Mm -hmm. In Saturday Night Fever, he actually whitens disco. Right. right. Um, and this is one of the major criticisms of the film by a lot of the communities that, you know, really uh, started disco. It's kind of like, you know, the same thing that happened with Vogue <laughs> when mm -hmm. Madonna, mm -hmm. you know, did Vogue where people are like, hey, appropriation. Um, you know, that's one of the things that Travolta does for disco. Um, and translates it into a broader audience. In some ways, that's also the same thing that he's doing now with country western, right? right. He is actually, in some ways, urbanizing country western. Right? We have an urban cowboy now instead of just like the cowboy cowboy. And one of the interesting after effects of this movie is that a lot of discos end up getting turned into honky tonks. Yes. Right. So there yes. is this sort of national transformation from the disco, which Travolta popularized to now the honky tonk that Travolta is popularizing. Right. And Travolta interestingly helps kill disco and he helps birth mm -hmm. widespread country music. So it's sort of, he makes amends for killing one art form by <laughs> promoting another. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. What's really interesting to me is the the time lag, right? Saturday night fever was in 1977 and mm -hmm. Urban Cowboy comes out in 1980. So disco only lasted three years, right? I mean, they had right. to kill that off fast, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Oh my God, this is too much. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we, we've got to make sure that none of this craziness keeps going for too long. Um, but, but it's interesting how quickly that backlash becomes cemented in pop culture at that time, right? right. By 19, by the time Airplane comes out, like every other joke in Airplane is an anti-disco Mm -hmm. joke mm -hmm. so it's it's fascinating to me how how quickly disco dies it, it does but it still lives but yeah it, yeah it totally does and the other thing that was interesting to us about uh this this film and sort of the everything around this film and the disco-ness of it all right so we've already mentioned that jerry hall is actually in the movie mm -hmm. right um the major premiere of the film that they have down in houston uh, Jerry Hall comes and her date is Andy Warhol, right? Who has previous, uh, <laughs> previously been mentioned in the pod for being on The Love Boat, as you yes, remember, right? Yes. The ubiquitous Andy Warhol. Mm -hmm. um, so Jerry Hall brings Andy Warhol to the premiere. And uh, well, well, I'll, I'll start out with the, the, the slower thing, which is that at the premiere, Diane von Furstenberg is also there. She of the rap dress mm -hmm. fame. Um, and her outfit is fantastic because she's wearing a sheriff's star badge that says disco sucks on it yeah i'm like really diane von furstenberg mm. you're like miss disco so now she's turned turned coat and she's disco sucks but jerry hall comes with andy world to this premiere and 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 what does she wear paul she <laughs> wears the george hamilton outfit from the life of hank williams and she, she looks really amazing in it. It's just is, uh, and it, the documentary where we see a lot of these images is mm -hmm. called Urban Cowboy, The Rise and Fall of Gillies, yes. uh, which was on country music television um, mm -hmm. a few years ago. Yes. Uh, but it's, it's this, you have the, the ex-wife of Mick Jagger wearing right. the, the Hank Williams, or the Hank Williams attire from a George Hamilton movie I, I don't and know it's how you... a jumpsuit. It's yes, it's yes. A, it's a shiny jumpsuit, and it is the most disco thing you have ever seen in your life. So, you know, the lines are very, very blurry. It's really very rhetorical in a mm -hmm. lot of ways, right? When you've got these people wearing these disco outfits saying "disco sucks," let's go country western, and of course, it also makes me think of the Village People, right? Right, and the cowboy. Um, mm -hmm. so all of these lines that people are trying to draw and like create a bright line between what is one thing and what is another, you know, super, super fuzzy. Um, and the costumes really give it away. Right. Um, right. one of the things that Paul and I kept noticing in this whole movie was the costuming of the men in particular, right. Mm -hmm. Uh, like John Travolta's character goes through this, uh, he, he gets a makeover, <laughs> that's right in the first couple I, yeah. scenes like when we first saw him we're like oh my god he's he's like um he's a mountain man he's a you know he's got this huge huge untrimmed beard it's 
it's a terrible beard it is <laughs> it, yeah and one of the things they say to him is when he gets his job in the oil refinery, they're like you're gonna have to shave that off right mm -hmm. and so we have a makeover scene where he shaves off his beard um and when he arrives then at gillies the next day newly clean shaven there's this very long slow pan up his body right yeah. um yeah starts with his boots, goes up his legs, with his jeans, and you see the belt buckle, and you see the very fancy country western shirt, right? He's holding his long neck beer bottle like a phallus. <laughs> it, I wouldn't say it's like a phallus. It's, it, it actually is. It is a phallus. It is a phallus. It's a beer penis mm -hmm. um, is the phrase that I use. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, this is a this is an explicit episode. Yeah, um, not suitable so, for work, folks. Yes, no. but it and, and that look all the way up his body is actually a thing that is constantly remarked on by mm -hmm. critics. I mean, we both were gawping at it, but we are not the first by any stretch of the imagination. No. Um, and the men, one of the things we said to each other is that, you know, the men are dandies, right? Mm -hmm. They dress up. Um, they're wearing these very expensive clothes. They're wearing these very impractical clothes. Um, and we were remarking on this to ourselves. And then all of a sudden I read the Aaron Latham article and there he is talking about it all the time too, right? He talks about mm -hmm. how these are not clothes that anyone would ever wear to do any cow punching activities. No, right? no, it, <laughs> it is very performative wear, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, again, another connection to saturday night fever mm -hmm. is of course that that male gaze uh mm -hmm. that you see like travolta's body the very iconic scene where he's getting ready to go out uh in saturday night fever yes. and the camera's panning up through yes. his uh uh i guess bikini bikini shorts right mm -hmm. uh speedo in essence uh and he's like quaffing his hair and yes. it, um I, I can't there's not really an many male actors from this time period that their bodies are so placed uh through the camera that you would say if you t replace them with a woman that's like the uh, the definition of the gaze absolutely uh, his body is really like the third main character in this film mm -hmm. um yeah but yeah also, absolutely th there's also a good level of homoerotic gaze too because mm -hmm. the there's a scene where when when Wes Hightower uh, is riding the bull wearing a mesh shirt. Um, He's wearing the right side Fred mesh shirt from <laughs> yes. I'm Too Sexy. That's the shirt. Yeah, uh, but Bud is like, there's a level of jealousy in oh, yeah. Bud's, Bud's eyes, but also like a high level of eroticism Absolutely. of looking at this other male figure doing something, riding a bull that uh, he can't do as well. Right. Um, and but also bud when they go to the prison rodeo mm -hmm. uh bud is there's a scene uh sissy is trying to do you remember this Sissy's this is their honeymoon the prison this rodeo is, this is their honeymoon <laughs> this is their honeymoon is going to see a oh, real kids rodeo. oh kids God. <laughs> and they're watching it it's the prison rodeo and sissy's kind of like you know let's go back to the hotel mm -hmm. and bud says no no i want to watch this and, and it's, it's west it's west Right. right, you know, and riding a real bull. And... An actual bull. Mm -hmm. And and Bud's got to stick around, right? They're not going back to any hotel for that. Um, the other thing after, in that scene after Bud watches Wes successfully ride the mechanical bull for the first time, um, right after everyone kind of breaks, there's a dance break, right? Mm -hmm. um, and everybody goes out on the floor. And at first it's couples, right? Two stepping around like they usually do. Um, right. But then bud breaks out and does a spotlight dance by himself in the middle of the floor right um and of course this has to happen because it's travolta right of course and it's a course. direct callback to saturday night live but he also has to gain back the male gaze right mm -hmm. he has to get all of the attention back on him he needs to have all of the men looking at him and there's a moment where wes is watching him right so right. Uh, bud has been watching wes ride the bull and now wes is watching bud uh, do his little spotlight dance. Literary critic Eve Sedgwick talks about how a lot of these classical texts are actually about male relationships, homosocial relationships, mm -hmm. instead of any kind of 
male female erotic relationships and that the the woman exists in order to mediate the relationships between the two men and you know so this is a standard standard trope it's the same yeah. thing's going on here right so speaking of that i yes. think it might be time to talk about the woman navigating the male gaze the swoon worthy deborah winger it is a winger appreciation time. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so she's the real hero of this film. Um, mm -hmm. uh, her character, Sissy, first line in the film to Bud, she comes up to him and says, are you a real cowboy? Right. She actually ends right. up saying that also to Wes. The real sissy Betty um, has said, I never ask anybody that <laughs> because she, <laughs> she clearly already knew that they weren't real cowboys. Right. Um, but that's that's Sissy's pickup line, right? And it's actually quite effective. Poor Sissy, right, is in this again hyper masculine world trying to navigate it, like Paul said. Mm -hmm. um, and she spends an awful lot of time inserting herself into masculine spaces and masculine activities. Right. Probably the best example of this is her desire to ride the mechanical bull, right? Yes. That. In the film, <clears throat> the mechanical bull is a contested male space. Like it, it's the the sign of your hyper masculinity. And when we Wes first appears <clears throat> in the bar, he goes and Jerry rigs the, the 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 apparatus to make it go faster, make it go higher. So he's proving his super masculinity. Mm -hmm. Sissy though is enraptured with this. Not only there's certainly the sexual overtone of it, Absolutely. of course, yes. um, but also because like she's pushing against uh, Bud's declaration that Sissy ain't going to ride the bull. Right. And um, there's some really fantastic scenes of Sissy learning to ride the bull like she's riding it like she's riding a surfboard in essence. Mm -hmm. um, there is one scene where it's very famous where she's leaning back against the bull kind of parallel like her back is completely she's laying uh, down on it she's yeah she's lying down on it and <laughs> like probably the, one of the most like sexual scenes i've ever seen in cinema yeah you, you can't not say for work if you watch the <laughs> sissy riding the bull the <laughs> oh, second time around oh. like the first time around she does it just for competence mm -hmm. um the second time around which is like one of the most Again, it, it is it is super not safe for work scene. She's making love to the bull in front yeah. of everyone. Everyone is seeing her do it. Um, and um, but this is after she spent some time again in kind of a montage scene, getting taught how to ride the bull. But that scene is intercut. Um, she's basically she's left the trailer. This is after she and Bud are married. She's left the trailer and gone to Gillies in the middle of the day um, during their off hours to learn how to ride the bull while Bud is at work. And right. Bud is at work and he's high up on a scaffold installing insulation on this rig. And I don't remember exactly why he slips and falls. Oh, I know why he slips and falls because he's, he's, he's hungover, right? He's incredibly hungover. Incredibly hungover. From and, the and there's a scene before this where Sissy is trying to convince him to not go right. to work and he right. stubbornly goes. That's right. And he slips and then he gets caught by his heel and he's dangling upside down, you know, 300 feet in the air. Um, he is in actual danger, right? Mm -hmm. About to die. People are looking up at him. They don't know how to save him. Sissy is meanwhile uh, sort of pretending like she's in danger on this bull, this sort of me mechanized, very controlled space. But she's, you know, and she's getting mastery over this bull, whereas he is completely losing control over his life. Mm-hmm. It's it's the scene that's like the kind of in case you didn't understand what was going on in this movie, <laughs> we'll it's, spell it out for you. <laughs> there's literally there's literally a character walking across the screen with a sign that says "message." And, uh, that's right. This uh, is day three of their marriage, by the I way. I believe that's so, right. <laughs> yeah. Yes, and the, and, and the trailer is already a hot mess. It's already disgusting. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. the rats and roaches have already moved in. Yeah. Um, yeah, but it's definitely this moment of like, look, she's taking away all of his masculinity. And that's why he's about to die here mm -hmm. in this horrible dead end job that he's got. That's nothing like being an actual cowboy and completely no. emasculating. He's um, also hanging from a, like a basically a derrick. 
not a derrick but a tower and so yeah. like there's the phallic imagery of dangling from a, a, a phallus while his his wife is riding another phallus that's right um, yeah very successfully and mm -hmm. really enjoying herself um winger herself right is just an amazing actress yeah. um in fact uh she's incredibly magnetic every scene she's in your your eye is drawn to her mm -hmm. which is why she is this episode's winner of the alan rickman <laughs> memorial trophy joining such illuminaries as tom hanks who else has won it i'm can't, i can't remember uh tom hanks and uh coach coach who nick oh god see <laughs> nick colasanto thank you thank you so congratulations deborah you know we'll we'll send you the 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 trophy in the mail yes uh, we will yes she yeah. definitely although this is a somewhat contested um awarding because Ooh. there was a late breaking candidate somebody who we did not actually initially think mm -hmm. would be eligible for this but on further research extra rewatching, <laughs> when we learned more about him we started thinking that this award might even go to scott glenn who scott plays glenn, west hightower. hightower and why did we love scott glenn so much paul well we we did some research about mr glenn he worked in uh, kenosha as a reporter yes um he, he was an english major he was an english major and <clears throat> there there's some quotes in the urban cowboy documentary that we both said oh totally an english major <laughs> <laughs> absolutely um, Sorry, but i i'll read i'll read one of them because yeah. it was just so stunning to me i sat down and, and transcribed it um so this is in the documentary he's talking about his role here in this film he says i'm in a movie that's about a lot of people now he says it in a very kind of folksy way that i can't possibly uh, mm -hmm. reproduce so you know look up this documentary and listen to him saying it because in his voice it's astonishing he says i'm in a movie that's about a lot of people who live their lives metaphorically people who dress up like western outlaws on weekends to go into not the great outer spaces but the great inner spaces of gillies to ride not really a bull but a mechanical bull and i'm going to be playing a guy who's a real bank robber a real outlaw, a real rodeo bull rider. And I figured, well, if I just do that honestly, I'm going to jump out of this frame like a black diamond in a big pile of rhinestones. That's English major. That's Isn't really that good. genius? Yeah. It was yeah. just yeah, it just really was brilliant and it's true, right? He he is his character is the one real true, you know, cowboy mm -hmm. in this whole thing. Um, he's also a hot mess, right? He's, I mean, he is an outlaw. When he is abusive toward Sissy, right? Because he and Bud are both abusive toward Sissy. You really worry that he's actually going to injure her yeah. very significantly, right? Um, he really can. And actually, uh, Scott Glenn had a lot of really interesting things to say about the scene where he and Deborah Winger have a big fight in the kitchen and he is very physically abusive to her. Um, he talks about how, you know, he thought through the, the way that they had to physically move through that scene, um, how Wes, he says, e even, if, even if I'm not in love with this girl, I'm certainly in lust with her. So I've got mm -hmm. this tension between being angry with her and wanting to hurt her and also, you know, lusting after her, right? So he talks right. about the way that he, he deals with that differently and how Winger was like, yeah, you know, if you're gonna do this, you know, really do it. And he actually ended up, actually ended up hurting Winger when they mm -hmm. filmed that scene. Um, he's a method actor. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, and then he, he, he talks in the documentary about how his wife and kids were living with them during the filming, but he was West Hightower all the time. And he came home to the, the, the um, apartment one day and there was a note and his wife was like, I can't stand living with West Hightower. You know, we're, we're leaving, we're going back home yeah. to North Dakota yeah. until, uh, until you're done with this, you know. There is, there's a moment in that method, that method acting strain that he, he describes where he, to get the part, like he actually walked into Gillies Mm -hmm. and resisted doing a screen test <clears throat> and just walked to the bar mm -hmm. and pointed to like the biggest guy he could find and said you're in my seat 
Yes. And the guy just up and leaves. And right. That's how uh, Glenn gets the part in essence is convinces the director, okay, this guy is this guy is the real the real McCoy. Yeah, he he is menacing. Now, and the real McCoy is a is a uh, also he he's a he's an outlaw, right? And mm-hmm. we see him originally in this prison rodeo, um, which you did a little bit of research on. Yes, the prison yes. rodeo because prison. that was kind of a weird thing. I was like, is that a thing? It it still is a thing. Uh, it's not nearly as prominent as it was years ago. So they actually go in the film to the Huntsville Rodeo, uh, okay. which ended in 1986. Um, so prison rodeos, they start in the Depression era in Louisiana, Texas, Oklahoma. Prior to this, like what one of the ways prisons would make money was they would kind of function like tourist traps sure. where you would you could tell people come buy tickets. You can see the prisoners. You can't talk to them. Mm. Uh, but you can see how the prisoner life is. And sometimes prisons would do like vaudeville variety shows or put on little plays to entertain people. Hmm. Um, the Texas prison system kind of <clears throat> falls apart with, with the depression. And so they decide to stage a rodeo. Um, hmm. Rodeo itself has a pretty, pretty nebulous. No one really quite knows where rodeo comes from. The, the hmm. best guess is the 1860s in Colorado, where you have competing groups of cowboys just kind of showing off for each other. The first official rodeo is in 1888 in Prescott, Arizona. Hmm. Um, and so rodeos kind of serve this interesting function in that they really, they really promote the old idea of the West, mm-hmm. a West that never existed. So the mythological West mm-hmm. that in the 19th century had been done by Wild West shows like Buffalo Bill. Mm-hmm. But those die when Western films become really popular. Oh, yeah. And... So in Texas and other places, the rodeo becomes a kind of performative de facto space for the cowboy mythos Got it. that had existed with Wild West shows and to an mm-hmm. extent still exists with film. The prison rodeos in a lot of places are promoted uh, with a, a kind of a kind of like blood sport, right? So the appeal to go see prisoners was they don't have the same social standing as another cowboy might. Mm-hmm. And a lot of events would be marketed <clears throat> to people as like the most dangerous things possible. Mm-hmm. One of them uh, was uh, an event where prisoner, prisoners would try to re- retrieve a bag of money between the horns of an angry bull. And this was like, one of the most popular events, the Huntsville Rodeo. Yeah, somebody um, might die. That's exciting, right? Exactly, exactly. Um, and so they would do a lot of events that would be standard rodeo fare, but they would ratchet it up to really sell it uh, as hmm. this dangerous blood sport. Hmm. Um, one of the, the complicating things about the rodeo was that for a lot of prisoners, this was a, a chance to make money. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it still wasn't the same prize money that you would see at the public rodeos. Mm-hmm. But you gain some notoriety, you gain some publicity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of cowboys felt, or I should say a lot of prisoners felt some mm-hmm. level of agency. Mm-hmm. Um, but That's how they get you. <laughs> that's how they get you. <laughs> um, there is still one prison rodeo taking place. That's the Angola Prison Rodeo in Louisiana. Held one weekend in April, and I believe in September. Uh, but I, be- I think that's, that's it. Mm. Um, but it would like by the time the film is being made, it's still a huge draw for people to go in the Houston area to go to this this prison rodeo. And it was a real thing, or still is a real thing. And I, for me, I thought it was just like some pop culture thing that was made up that mm. like yeah. some sort of like Warner Brothers cartoon joke <laughs> that took on a life of its own. No, it's actually the Coliseum. We actually still yeah, yeah. But, it is. Well. That's delightful. I don't That's know. yeah. Well, there's my depressing moment. For <laughs> That's the Early let's bum out the listeners. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> prison radios actually a thing. Mm-hmm. Everybody go look up abolition, prison abolition. On yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Can you depress us too, Amy? Or, or are you gonna? Like... Uh, well, I could. I have a couple of things that might depress. I mean, so Paul, this whole prison radio thing makes me start thinking. You know, we were talking about West Hightower as the real cowboy. Is mm-hmm. it really real, though? Because if he's doing the prison rodeo, is that real? 
it's it's it is realer than what Bud is doing, right? So it's okay. like there's still like a lot of the, the skills you do in rodeo you would do on a ranch, right? As as a cowboy. Mm -hmm. Um I don't know the percentage of cowboys that are in prison rodeos, mm -hmm. but certainly like the rodeo itself is incredibly dangerous, right? So okay. you're doing a real performance. I mean, it's mm -hmm. it's <clears throat> performance in the sense of you're emulating things that used to happen all the time. Okay. But but it's rodeo is still a much closer performance to what cowboys did. Mm -hmm. With with the artifice, of course, of like mm -hmm. of performance. Whereas what Bud's doing. Mm -hmm. And all the characters at Gillies, mm -hmm. they're not cowboys. They're pretending to be cowboys. So to me, like, mm -hmm. even though there's this artifice of rodeo and cowboy life, mm -hmm. it's still more authentic than Gillies, which is all reenactment of cowboy life or right. uh, cosplaying as, as, mm -hmm. as cowboys. Well, and that's a really good point. I mean, another though thing to think about is the the question of danger, right? Mm -hmm. Is it is it real danger or is it pretend danger? And you know, around the mechanical bull, they've got all these cushions, right? They've got all these mattresses. Uh, you know, any guy could get thrown from the mechanical bull, and he's probably going to be okay, right? Mm -hmm. He's going to land on the mattresses. But um, and crap, we got this wrong earlier. Because What's we that? said that we said that Bud broke his arm when he was hang, hanging from the derrick, but he did I, not. He broke his arm when he got thrown from the mechanical bull. Oh, remember? Right. Yeah. Now yeah, I'm yeah, remembering. Yeah, yeah. So he actually he ends up being fine after the derrick. He's just sort of shaken mm, up. Right. But then he goes back, and he and Wes are having a fight. Wes mm. takes control of the mechanical bull. This is what happens when tired people watch too many things, right? It, it, and it, it takes us too long between watching it and, 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 and taping. Remember, so Wes takes over the mechanical bull and he's mad at Bud and he's going to, uh, because they're already having contestation over Sissy, right? Mm -hmm. And Wes is telling Bud, let Sissy ride the bull. And, Wes, and Bud's like, no, she's not going to ride the bull. So then Wes takes control of the thing. And as I wrote in my notes, he cranks it up to 11. Yes, right? Yes. Right. And so it's more, and everybody's sitting there watching and going, no, don't do that. You're going to hurt him. And then mm -hmm. Bud ends up going flying. He right. ends up really hurting himself. And I, as I wrote in my notes, total emasculation, arm broken. Mm -hmm. Because also, not That's only right. is he thrown, but he's also hit by the bull. Yeah. Right. So yeah. it's like getting thrown by the horse and then getting stomped on mm -hmm. by the horse. Yeah. Um, I can't, yeah. I can't believe that. Yeah. I guess I, I was just equating the, I, I think the image of him dangling from the tower. Well, maybe, right. Because yeah. that's the actual dangerous thing, right? The bull is not supposed to be the actual dangerous thing, but for Bud, poor Bud, who actually, he, it's almost like he sucks so badly. Like he's brought so low that mm. this thing that shouldn't actually be dangerous has become dangerous for him. Right. 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 So it's even worse, right. Than getting yeah. hurt at work. Yeah. yeah he's the poser he's the poser that tries to show off and mm -hmm. then like is trying i can't think of a good analogy here but it's yeah. it's absolutely true right yeah yeah well and then after he breaks his arm uh one of the things that's interesting is you know he takes up with this new woman mm -hmm. right um and she's kind of the fourth character in this love square i guess <laughs> I love, love parallelogram love parallelogram right <laughs> uh, and she has come to Gillies and she is slumming, right? And she yeah. too is looking for a real cowboy. Mm -hmm. um, She's also looking for love in all the wrong places. Oh, no, no. <laughs> yes, we haven't talked about that song. Oh my gosh. Uh, we yeah. have to talk about that song. We haven't talked about any of the country western music. No, we we no. got to do that. Yeah. Um, but first, Pam. Mm -hmm. Pam. Um, is the daughter of one of the big oil and gas tycoons. Um, and she lives in a condo that's all chrome and glass. Um, mm -hmm. It's straight out of, uh, if anybody's ever gone and seen this, there's a great thread on Twitter called Cocaine Decor um, that talks about <laughs> 80s interior decoration. She's a part of this whole oil and gas wealth 
that is actually what Bud is beholden to and, and for whom he works, right? right. Um, so quick detour through the oil and gas industry in the late 70s, early 80s, right? Super mm -hmm. quick. Um, it's a fascinating history, right? Only the briefest of overviews. The gusher age of oil and gas in Texas is the 1910s to the 1940s. Um, an interesting thing I found out is that the city of Houston grew 555 percent wow. in the 20 years between 1910 and 1930. Right? Um, there's a book called Texas Boomtowns by a guy named Barty Hale um, that goes through this. It's it's a it's a really interesting period. Skipping then several decades uh, to the 1970s and early 1980s, um, some of us may have traumatic memories of sitting in lines at gas stations. I know that I certainly do because it was usually in the summer and it was hot. So what happens is oil and gas prices skyrocket after OPEC starts oil embargoes uh, because of the 1973 Arab-Israeli war. Again, during the, this is, this is what does in Carter um, in, in large part, um, mm -hmm. that in the um, Iran hostage crisis. By 1981, Oil is $31 a barrel versus it was $3.89 in 1973. In that, you know, in that span of time, in that eight years, um, Americans are just getting completely trashed by oil and gas prices, but that's going great down in Texas. They're making mm. money hand over fist. Right. Um, Americans started buying energy efficient cars eventually, um, and that begins a bust uh starting in the early 80s and the bottom falls out basically by 1986. Mm -hmm. um urban cowboy is set at, and filmed at the tail end of the boom right um so 1980 there's not really a sense that the boom is going to end right, right. so there are a lot of people getting tremendously wealthy in texas out of oil and gas they're not guys like bud though they're guys like pam's dad Right. So Pam comes slumming, looking for a real cowboy, which she actually finds is a guy who's pretending to be a cowboy who's actually working on her dad's rig, but good enough for her. He lives in a trailer. She can actually go visit. And we have all these scenes that go back and forth between um, his trailer. She's visiting him there. Um, Paul was like, what, what is she getting out of this relationship? Right. Yeah. So she's getting a sense of authenticity sort of uh, I yeah i suppose i suppose like but i mean but, her like, authenticity is wrong like she can't see as far into what real cowboyness is as sissy can't right mm -hmm. she's just another level removed from it and that's that's kind of reinscribed um in the ways when whenever she and bud go out they go into these condos these chrome and glass places they're always playing really bad soft rock right with lots of yeah. saxophone yeah. um and at one point, uh, she actually takes Bud to an alternate country western bar, <laughs> which is which is called the Cowboy, <laughs> right? And this place is again chrome and glass. You know, there's absolutely there's not even space for them to two step, right? As opposed to Gillies, which is right. the size of several football fields. But so so Pam is this sort of fourth character, this fourth iteration. Um, but she's also super, super feminine, right? She wears right. tons of makeup. She's got glossy, straight black hair, as opposed to Sissy, who does have brown hair, but mm -hmm. she doesn't wear a lot of makeup. Um, Sissy's uniform is the tank top and jeans. She is one version of femininity. And this next iteration, though, of femininity that's offered is... Actually, this is this scene is right before uh, Pam takes Bud to the cowboy bar. Right, right. Um, she has gone with him and his uncle and aunt to Gillies because the aunt is going to be participating in the Dolly Parton lookalike contest. Yes, yes. And so, like, there's a scene, and you can imagine, like, if you think of cliches of Dolly Parton. Right. Which or is like, kind of all that was available in the 80s, yeah. let's be honest. Yeah. I mean, now we think of her as this feminist, philanthropist, yeah, philanthropist, post-wave feminist icon, right? She's had this amazing revival. Um, Tressie McMillan Cotton wrote recently, she's working on a Dolly timeline. She's sort of saying that the 2010s is this moment where Dolly is kind of 
reinvented and in some ways seen for who she really was all along. Mm -hmm. um, my buddy Lee Edwards um, wrote a great book called Dolly Parton, Gender and Country Music, where she talks about the complexity of the way Dolly brings together two different feminine stereotypes. Mm -hmm. um, thing is, as a kid in the 80s, that wasn't really available, right? No. For thinking about. No. For us in the 80s, like Dolly Parton was just this a one image. Yeah. Yeah. A punchline. Even though, like, there's so, like, now I, I look at, listen to her music and, like, damn, that stuff is really amazing. And, but yet, like, I, I think she really starts to, like, cement or this, this bastardized parody of her. Mm -hmm. really is starting to be cemented in the late 70s early 80s yeah. as just as you said this punchline and so th this moment in <clears throat> the film is all these women this kind of parody of femininity in in, mm -hmm. in 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 some ways and so it's contrasted with so like a fake femininity because it's mm -hmm. dolly parton and a fetishized femininity and then there's sissy right mm -hmm. who's like kind of straddling right that masculine feminine divide in contrast right with pam who is much more feminine yes well there's a lot more to be said about dolly parton and we will definitely say it in future episodes yes. because i think it's really important for us to also recognize just really briefly here um that as so many cultural critics have commented dolly was in on the joke all along mm -hmm. right that even though she didn't really have control over how some of the presentation of her image swirled, you know, out into the reception and the way that, you know, 10 year old kids dealt with her, she really was playing all of that up uh, yeah. in very savvy ways um, that have finally borne fruit, right? Now mm -hmm. people finally kind of get Dolly. Well, the one thing that we didn't, and Dolly brings this up, country music. We haven't really talked a lot about country music. The music, the soundtrack is such an important part of this. Mm -hmm. uh, um, Mickey Gilley, of course, became a, kind of a, a musical celebrity after the film came out, touring around Johnny Lee. Johnny Lee. Who sang Looking for Love and all, all the wrong places, because I just dropped my phone because I was going to look... I've been, by the way, I've been working on a Spotify playlist for the annotated 80s, and that's where I have this, but I need to change it because there are so many songs from this movie on here. Mm -hmm. It's a that, really epic soundtrack. It yeah. Was, it was a, it, there were four LPs mm -hmm. in the soundtrack, um, and it brought into, uh, it, it basically was a, an anthology, right, of right. country western music. Yeah. Um, and it run you know the, it runs the gamut from the johnny lee to of course we brought up charlie daniels mm -hmm. uh ann murray makes an appearance on here um, uh jerry lee lewis does, has an appearance as mm -hmm. well mickey gillies cousin bonnie Raitt. Yeah. um so it goes from the sublime to the ridiculous mm -hmm. <laughs> it does, mm -hmm. but it's quite an encapsulation uh one thing that's interesting to note is uh, uh, that when the characters go out into the world outside of Gillies and listen to the radio. They're listening to stuff like the Eagles. Yeah. Uh, which is not like real country Western. Right? So it's not even real think. music. I mean, <laughs> it's, yes. I wasn't it's, necessarily going to go there. I, go, I will go there. I Paul, will. Paul and I both loathe the Eagles mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. with burning, burning hot passion. <laughs> but it's, but it's interesting because at this time in country music there is this this one of the first real i would say the mid 70s on this real conflict about the extent to which country music was becoming interspliced with rock and roll and right. pop music mm -hmm. and you know pam is listening to all this kind of soft you know 70s pop in her <coughs> in her condo mm -hmm. well, a lot of country Dreadful. music in the 70s was very you know light poppy mm -hmm. um and uh, so it, it kind of makes sense that the characters are all listening to this country rock that's mm -hmm. not really country rock and mm -hmm. then pop music, which is quasi pop country. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> Johnny Lee then has a crossover hit with Looking for Love in All the Wrong Places and mm -hmm. like the Saturday Night Live Fever soundtrack. <laughs> Saturday Night Live Fever? You did it before. You did it before. <laughs> the, Saturday Night, the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. 
uh, okay. kind of launches this this career of all these different artists? Oh, well, I think we've run to the end of our sanity here, Paul. On this. Uh, <laughs> we were never there in the first place. I'm not sure. So it's time for us to talk about our grad reading. Yes. Why don't you go first, Amy? I will go first. So I kind of regret my grad reading a little bit, but I'm going to, I'm going to stick with it because I committed to it. I committed mm. to it a long time ago and I'm going to stick with it. Um, I'm sending you to uh, Giant, which was first a novel by Edna Ferber, mm -hmm. uh, published in 1952. Um, and it was made into a film then in 1956, starring Rock Hudson, James Dean in his last film, mm -hmm. and Elizabeth Taylor. Um, the novel is terrific. It has an epic sweep. It tells the story of multiple generations of a family, a uh, ranching family, the Benedict family. And it tells then about the rivalry between ranch families and oil tycoons um, in Texas. The film is long. It's really, really long. <laughs> it took you, I think it took you six weeks to get through the movie. <laughs> it is 197 minutes long, uh, which is, it's a commitment. Um, oh, I didn't realize it was that long. It's 197 minutes wow. long. It is, it is an epic film um but it does offer one of the reasons i like it is because it, it kind of uh sets out uh this cowboy versus oilman narrative that drives an awful lot of the discussions of texas um it underpins urban cowboy um at the end of this version spoiler alert the cowboys win um mm -hmm. it turns out that rock hudson's character um goes through a lot of growth personal growth Mm -hmm. um, of course, he can only win because of the love of a good woman. Mm -hmm. So, so my graduate reading, graduate reading, went through a number of iterations. I was originally thinking the Coen Brothers' Blood Simple, which is set in Texas, another kind of in a honky tonk bar. Uh, it's an amazing movie. I was thinking about country music. My one of my all time favorite movies, Altman's Nashville, mm. which uh, is just amazing, but. The last second, <laughs> I <laughs> I thought of a kind of the, 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 the another film in the urban cowboy genre, mm -hmm. uh, 1984's Rhinestone, featuring Dolly Parton mm. and S S Sylvester Stallone, and <sighs> this is one of the worst movies I've ever seen. <laughs> Mine was just long. You're yours saying just, yours is bad. <laughs> it's bad. It is. I, I, like, and we're both Gen Xers. We're doing to our so, grad students. <laughs> yeah. It's, listen, kids, it's just awful. Um, I, it, it really tests my patience for Gen X ironic enjoyment. I, it is ju it's just tragic. Uh, but, but Dolly Parton is playing a singer at a, a, uh, a, a, a country nightclub in New York City. Mm -hmm. um, she has a bet with the owner that she can transform any, it's sort of like Pygmalion, like she can transform anybody into a country singer. Oh my God. Of course, the owner picks Stice Stallone, who is this obnoxious cabbie. Um, shenanigans ensue, and they go back to Tennessee to learn how to, like he learns how to be a country singer. That's all I'll say. Like that's the setup, and that's it's it's amazingly bad. Like it's one it's the one movie the one movie that Stallone has said he wish he wouldn't have done. Wow, that's quite which something. Is, which is saying something. That is really because he had Rocky Five, and your personal favorite movie <laughs> Rambo Part Two, the first the sixth Bloodening or whatever the hell it's called. So, it's a that's a statement. It's a statement, but. It's it's a bespurchment on both their careers. Mm, that's unfortunate. Uh, yeah. Well, I'm going to throw out there that I had actually, instead of Giant, had kind of wanted to um, make my grad reading the Gillies-themed Fantasy Island episode. Yes, that is a thing that exists. It's season six, episode five, called Everybody Goes to Gillies. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> wanted to watch it, wanted to recommend it to you. Sadly... It is not possible to find Fantasy Island season six streaming anywhere. Um, so one of these days I'm going to watch it again and we'll put it in the clip show. I'll talk all about it. But that's fantastic. Just imagine in your head Hervé Villachez, uh dressed in country western drag. And it's, 
a thing that really never should have happened. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think we'd say that for a lot of the things we've discussed so far in the show. It should never have happened. It really should never have happened. No, no. Uh, but the thing that's happening next. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna toss this to Paul because this is his this, baby. Let me. I, I don't usually speak in hyperbole. This is the greatest movie ever made in human history. That is 1989's Roadhouse, featuring Patrick Swayze, and a plot that is, oh, Patrick Swayze and Sam Elliott, and a plot that I am still trying to unpack after 13 times I've seen this movie and. <laughs> I cannot wait for this next episode at all. I am, and I've watched it once and I believe I fell asleep halfway through. So this is going to be really an exciting time for me. Well, thank you everyone for listening in again. Um, thank, you. thank you. Thank you to our new producer, Eleanor Oyama, um, who's going to try to make sense of this mess that we've created. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, yeah, we'll see you next time, whenever that happens. Bye. Bye. Bye.